All right, welcome. Hello, if I've never got to meet you, my name is Matt Proctor, and I get the privilege to teach God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to uh, the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, three quarters of the way in. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 22. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are called chapters. And so uh, we're in chapter 22, big number 2-2. This is the the last day of one sermon series, moving into a a new sermon series next Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll start looking at a a little book in the Bible, which I think our women's ministry people are doing on Thursday morning. We're going to look at a book called Habakkuk. And if you're unfamiliar with Habakkuk, it's, it's one of those books that ask the deep questions, like why is there violence in the land? Uh, why is there such unrighteousness even among supposed holy people? And so we're going to look at that book for four or five weeks together. Uh, but today we end a, a sermon series looking at the, the invitations God makes toward us. And so in many ways, we're talking about, we'll talk the whole year about our opportunity to invite others, invite other people to our table, uh, I mean, other people to join us in ser- service, and inviting people to come to know the God that we know. Uh, but today we're going to talk about how God makes an invitation to us to know his son, to worship his son. Uh, and so let me just ask for God's blessing on our time, and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Uh, You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, You are the creator. Uh, You're the one that is holding uh, the planets of our solar system in in their proper orbit. Uh, You're the one that has put breath in our lungs. And so in all these things, we worship you, our creator and king. Uh, But then in a unique way, uh, we can know you as a savior, as a redeemer, as as a God who comes to save his people out of his mercy. And so we want to tremble before you both because you're a great king, but also because you're a God who forgives, and with you there is mercy. And so we pray that we would see you properly, O oh God. Um, so prepare our minds, prepare our hearts, and bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this past week, I think it was Thursday, I was driving down uh, 7th Avenue Marion, turning into 1st Avenue Cedar Rapids, and uh, the car right in front of me at the stoplight, right by the Casey's, was a truck, and it had this this little decal. I think we have a picture of the decal, and this is what it said. It said, my wife told me if I go fishing one more time, she's going to leave me. Gee, I'm going to miss her. Now, it's tough to not see that decal and smirk. Um, and f- some of you may know that it, it's actually a short summary of a much longer country song by Brad Paisley. Uh, here's some of the lyrics that closes out Brad Paisley's song. He says, now there's a chance that if I hurry, I could beg her to stay. But that water's right and the weather's perfect. No telling what I might catch today. So I'm going to miss her. When I get home, but right now I'm on this lake shore and I'm sitting in the sun. I'm sure it'll hit me when I walk through that door tonight. Yeah, I'm going to miss her. Oh, looky there, another bite. So it's a funny song, but it's actually not a funny reality. 
I mean, just think about that. Like to get to a place in a marriage where a wife has to make that kind of ultimatum to their husband. Do you love me more than a small mouth bass? Right? There, there's a point like, huh? you're like, whoa, like it, it is. It's a sad state when, when a marriage gets to a place where either the husband or the wife has to put forward an ultimatum to kind of wake someone up, get their attention that the, the decisions that they're making are harmful for them or harmful for the relationship. And yet sometimes ultimatums are necessary. I grew up in a home where one time my father had to make an ultimatum to my older brother. You either abide by the rules of this house or you go and find another house. Uh, It's helpful. Uh, I looked it up this week. Uh, The Webster Dictionary defines ultimatum this way. A final proposition, condition, or demand, especially one whose rejection will end negotiations and cause... Uh, a, a resort to force or other direct action. You might call a, an ultimatum a severe mercy. It's necessary. It's unpleasant, but it could be helpful. Well, the text that we're going to read in just a moment in Matthew 22, it's actually an ultimatum. Uh, it, 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 where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we've, we've long come out of Bethlehem, and, and baby Jesus is no baby Jesus. He's a grown man. And for three years, he has been traveling Jerusalem, Israel, and a few of the outlying countrysides, demonstrating that he is a teacher like no other. He's beginning to make statements that he is a king like no other. And as he has been in Jerusalem for a few days, now at the end of his life, there is a confrontation brewing between the religious powers and political authorities in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to give an ultimatum, but in story form, to first century listeners. And now for us. And let me just warn you, Jesus never gives weak sauce. Like this is a bold lion king standing in front of the powers that be and says, can I tell you a story? So let me read to you this story. And you'll catch the ultimatum is all throughout, but it brings, it really comes home in verse 14. So again, he's surrounded. Actually, we can even jump up into chapter 21 just to get the settings. It says, Uh, Verse 45 of chapter 21, it says, When the chief priests, so the head priests, and the Pharisees, the uh, high group of uh, religious leaders, they heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about them. Verse 46, they looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, 22 verse 1 says this, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. 
Well, then he sent more servants, and he said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those who those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. So I want to just walk through this passage. Really, kind of take we'll take two laps. We'll do kind of the twenty uh, the first century parable and its first audience, and then we'll take a second lap. Let's talk about the twenty first century perspective and us as the audience of Jesus's story. Uh, here's a principle, though, going back to the introduction, and this is the principle that the more ultimate the person, the more serious the ultimatum. Does that make sense? Right? The more ultimate the person, the more serious the ultimatum. If your six-year-old son goes up to dad and says, Dad, if you do that one more time, I'm going to take you down. That's cute, son. Right? But if a, a starting linebacker uh, for the even the Chicago Bears... Um, threatens to put you in your place, you listen, right? So the more ultimate the person, the more serious the ultimatum. This is Jesus speaking, and he tells a story. And he is the ultimate person in the story. If you didn't catch that, he's telling a parable. A parable is a story with meaning and implications. And in this story, he says, there is a great king, and he is throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And it says, go invite the people to come in. Now, it says that the, he, the, the servants actually go out to those who have already been invited. I don't know if you caught that. You know, um, you know in our culture, maybe they already had like a save the date and then they were waiting for the real wedding invitations. But again, this is a parable. And the parable is talking about things that the original readers would have understood. And the original readers are the Jewish people. The original Readers are God's chosen people. They had been brought out of Exodus. They had been uh, under the subject of God's laws and God's kings for centuries. But all along the way, there has been this promise to God's people, to the Jews, that he was going to send them a king. Uh, some of you are familiar with the term Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christ means anointed one. Christ means king. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, remember... 
the people who want to arrest him and kill him, he's being shrewd in the telling of this story. And he says, you of all people know that there has been a long uh, standing invitation that the king's son was going to show up. And the king has now sent out servants saying, the king's son has arrived. And it's time to pay him honor. It's time to kneel and to, to worship. Now, at the same time, you, again, we've got to take off our democratically minded 21st century lenses, right? How often does the heir of a kingdom get married? And how rare is it to actually get an invite? How many of you guys got invited to the last presidential inauguration? I didn't. Can you believe it? Right, but we're talking about the social strata in the ancient world is so much bigger and grander than what we Americans think. Like, I feel bad. Why didn't Obama call me this week and ask how I was doing? No, in the social strata of the first century, kings don't invite the plebeians to the party. So even though we don't realize that this is the graciousness of God, this is his mercy to say, hey, I want you to know my son. I want you to know the king and his son. So the ultimate person of full of glory and honor and majesty is also this gracious inviter. Come and know me. That's the ultimate person. You know, if you just turn to the right in your Bibles, when the Apostle Paul has a chance to to describe how glorious Jesus is, how amazing the son is, let me just read to you Colossians Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Like this, is, this is the one to whom we've been invited to, to come know and worship and bow and experience. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is the Apostle Paul describing Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the ultimate son. This is the son to whom the king says, come and pay him honor. Come to his wedding. You know, if you just pick up the Gospel of Matthew this week, he has been speaking with authority. He has brought people back from the dead. He has calmed storms. He has healed lepers. He has restored broken limbs. This is who Jesus has revealed himself as. And now before the authority, he's like, will you come and pay me honor? And the parable continues. Verse 3 says, the servants go out. What's the response to this glorious and yet merciful invitation of the king to come and worship and honor his son at the wedding. The first line at the end of three just says, they refuse to come. Servants of the king, ambassadors of the king, say, come and pay honor to his son. And the first thing we get, ah, they just didn't come. Look at the mercy of this king again. 
in verse 4, it says he sent more servants out. I mean, think about the insult that's just been done to the king. It says he sends more servants out. (laughs) And it's almost like he has to stoop to their level. Because this time he doesn't even talk about the sun. He talks about the food. (laughs) He says, hey, tell those that have been invited, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been, been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Now that is a humble king. Like you won't come and honor my son. Will you come and just have a hamburger? I mean, I would, I mean, I like my kids a lot. And so if I invited you to the party and you said, oh, I'm kind of busy. I'm like, but I'm, I'm smoking ribs. You're like, well, then I'll come. Like I would be a little insulted, but I'm not that glorious. And my kids are not that glorious, but this is like, this is God and his son. And he stoops to level, you know, it's going to be sweet. It's going to be a, it's going to be wonderful. Now in verse 8, you begin to see that something's more going on in the hearts of first century people. It says they paid no attention. And they went off. I mean, none of these people have ever eaten at the king's table. And for some reason, they have something better to do. One to his field, another to his business. And then it says, some seized the servants, mistreated them, and even killed them. Now, again, this is a parable. Uh, And the parable probably relates to the history of God sending all sorts of prophets in advance of Messiah Jesus. And people ignored the prophets, and sometimes they killed the prophets. And the last prophet is John the Baptist, to which he was killed. He was beheaded because he said, one greater than I is coming. So the parable is laying the groundwork you know, to this first century audience, you, you didn't listen to the servants before. You're not listening to the servants now. And the next line seems harsh, but it's not if you realize the insult that these people have done. Verse 7, it says, The king was enraged, and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, verse 7 could be a look back. To in, in the history of God's people, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, as well as Second Kings, Second Chronicles, that God had, in the past had used foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon to come in and bring judgment on Israel and on the city of Jerusalem. I probably agree with the scholars that think this is a look forward, that this is a warning to that present generation that that city is going to experience judgment. And those of you who know history, judgment does come on the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Within a generation of God, of Jesus warning that rejecting the invitation to come and worship Messiah Jesus, there will be judgment. So it could be a look back. It could be a look forward. And then it keeps going. First century audience. Um, The king does this next. He says to his servants, So some have rejected, they've ignored. But he says, hey, the wedding banquet is ready. Those I've invited, they didn't didn't deserve to come. And it says, go out to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you can find. And so the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
Now, this is both being fulfilled right then and there in the first century, that the, the so-called righteous people, they're not responding to Jesus, but the down-and-outers and the unpopular, they are. And so in the ministry of Jesus, he's saving tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. He's welcoming people with a pretty nasty past named Mary. He's bringing in the lepers. He's bringing in uh, people outside of Israel, like a Syrophoenician woman. He's, he's bringing in the people that are like, well, why would you invite them? Well, the people who thought they deserved to come didn't come. And the people who know they don't deserve, now they're, they're coming. They're responding to this amazing invitation. You want to eat at the king's table and honor the son, and there's people coming. It's also probably prophetic about the history of Christianity. That Christianity would then go out from Jerusalem to expanding Judea, then to neighboring Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The gospel even got to Mary in Iowa. That a servant showed up and said, the king's banquet table is ready. Come and honor his son. Jesus continues the story, though. It says, but when the king came in, verse 11, he wanted to see the guests. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, he wasn't naked. Uh, He's not dressed properly. He's not dressed with any sense of honor. And the king asked the question, how would you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on what's this man with no wedding clothes? Um, and there's, you know, actually some urban legends that the king provides wedding clothes. No scholar can back that up besides someone said it a long time ago. It's probably not true. But what you have here is you have the punk 15-year-old kid that thinks he's too cool to go to prom in a tux and he wears his pajamas. I actually had two guys, a class ahead of me, for the Indianola prom, they were seniors. I was junior. They wore they wore like basketball jerseys, and like they were cool because they just dishonored the formality of the event. This is the idea. This man comes, assuming that he deserved an invite, and really paying no honor to the person or the event or the occasion. And the king's like, ha, why did you come in this way? Do you know my son? Do you know what's been provided? And then the king told us his attendants, verse 13. It says, tie him hand and foot. Throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Many of you guys know that this is uh, a recurring expression that Jesus uses, uh, referring to uh, punishment, eternal punishment, hell. That this this ultimate person, the king and his son, they are dishonored, and so he experiences the ultimate punishment for such dishonor. And then Jesus lays that final ultimatum in verse 14. Many are invited, but few are chosen. That there are, there are ultimate ends for our decision-making. Uh, the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 2. I'll read to you verses 7 and 8. Our choices matter. How we respond to God matters. Romans 2, 7 says, To those who by persistent in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking 
and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Uh, the Bible term for that is kind of retributive justice, right? That is, we get no more than what we deserve, but no less than what we deserve for our choices and our response to God. When I was a, a little boy, I actually lived up in Sumner, Iowa, until I was seven, and my babysitter was named Lydia. I knew nothing. I know nothing about Lydia's religious background. Actually, I don't even remember. I do remember that after school, I got the little either vanilla or chocolate sandwich cookies, like the cheapest ones you can buy at the store. Uh, and I do remember that the, I wasn't allowed to go in her bedroom, which meant that was the most interesting place to go into. And I remember going into that room and looking up above her bed, she had this somewhat classic photo of, of a bunch of sheep with a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with a sheep over his shoulder. You guys seen this picture of Jesus? Um, for the longest time, I think that was my image of Jesus. That the only thing that he was was this really kind man who put lambs over his shoulders, like almost like a Mister Rogers personality who really likes sheep, or like this kind, somewhat maybe backward person, kind of like SpongeBob SquarePants, who is like this eternal optimist. I just want you to know from this story and many others in the gospel, Jesus is the ultimate person and he gives ultimatums about who he is. And that, and that I think that will kind of maybe rub 21st century people differently than it did 1st century people. But nonetheless, this is how God, this is how Jesus describes himself. So that, that first century parable was to challenge those first century Jews to truly respond to the Messiah that God had sent them. And some did, and many did not. So let's talk a little bit about some 21st century perspective. Uh, first, just to reiterate, Jesus Christ is the ultimate person. Now, he had demonstrated that aplenty by Matthew 22, but that's not where the Bible ends. The way Jesus ends up demonstrating him as the, himself as the ultimate person is at the end of this week in Jerusalem, he is going to be killed um, by experts at killing the Roman Empire. And they use the most uh, insulting as well as most painful punishment at that time, and maybe since, they use crucifixion. And they hang Jesus of Nazareth, and they kill him. And his charge, what was he killed for? What did he do? He claimed to be a king, which is why the charge for his death was hung above his head. King of the Jews. So everybody knew uh, who Jesus claimed to be. The Jews knew he was claiming to be king, and the Romans knew he was claiming to be king. And so both of them wanted to kill him because they did not think he was king. And the reason why I believe Jesus is the ultimate person, and many have since for 2,000 years, is three days later he rises again. He is the only person in history to defeat death. And he reigns. And then the Bible tells us that for 40 days, he is actually uh, in this physical body on the earth, training his disciples for his departure. Equipping them, giving them the understanding of why was his life and death and his resurrection so significant. And then at the end of that 40 days, we hear that he ascends into heaven. They actually watched him go up. And the angels even said, why are you still looking up? But he will come back. 
he will come back. So Jesus is the ultimate person. He's demonstrated both through his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And remember, the more ultimate the person, the more, the more serious the ultimatum, which is why early in the ministry of the apostles, they would say there is salvation in no one else but the name of Jesus Christ. There's no one who has done what he has done. There's no one with such glory. There's no one with such power. He is the only name. And people believed, and many, but many did not. And so there's different responses throughout history. There's different responses today. Some are still indifferent. Right? The invitation goes out and refuse to come. Or they come out like, I got something better to do. I was joking with some guys over here. Some people are watching a football game that's taking place in London right now. Got better things to do. Um, But there's also, throughout history, people have killed Christians, and they have killed missionaries. And there's been great persecution. Like, why? Like, why would you persecute uh, people coming about a message of forgiveness and love? Well, because it's not just forgiveness and love. It's also authority and power and a call to bow and and to yield and submit. And that's been a a controversial message for 2,000 years you know, interesting, in 2009, there was a group of atheists who lived out in, in England. And you guys, have you ever seen the big red buses that are driving around London? They put up uh, billboards in 2009 that read this way. There probably is no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. That is, that is one response to the message that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. But one of the realities going on in Matthew 22 that's for us today is that all judgments in history foretell that there will be a final judgment at the end of history. Did you catch that? All judgments in history foretell the final judgment at the end of history. So what Jesus warns about that will come in 70 AD, it did come. And then he said, but there's a greater judgment to come because there's a greater king who has lived and died and rose again. And so the invitation is for us to come and respond to him, to yield to him. God's calling us to him. God's summoning us to respond to him. Uh, speaking about, you know, ultimate ultimatums, uh, a couple of years ago, I, was, I, I serve as a police chaplain and I was riding along with Officer Brian Davis. If you have not met Officer Brian Davis in Marion, Iowa, he is this sweet, kind, helpful student resource officer for our school. Uh, but that day we get a call and we rush off to this area close to the high school and there's a very, very large man throwing rocks. And this very, very large man starts running toward Officer Davis. And Officer Davis pulls out his taser. And he points the taser at the young man. And in his sweet Officer Davis voice says, you need to stop. If you take another step, I'm going to tase you. And you saw this very large man, like, I mean, the, the, the hamster wheel was going. How fast is Officer Davis? How fast am I? What if he misses? But that ultimatum from Officer Davis, it's actually, it was a severe mercy. There are consequences for how you proceed here. 
uh, he didn't have to shoot him. But in much the same way, you know, when you hear about who Christ is and what he's done for us, it ends up being a severe mercy. It's a mercy to hear that there's hope in Christ Jesus. And yet it's, it comes off as severe because it says the consequences of choosing otherwise is something like the man who didn't want to dress up, didn't care. It says, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, at the end of the day, it's actually God who summons you to himself. You know, you may have had a Sunday school teacher talk to you about Jesus Christ. You may have, you know, I'm doing it right now. But at the end of the day, we all stand before God. And in God's mercy, he's the one who calls us to him. Uh, of note, a generation ago, uh, there was a famous uh, television personality named Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge would have been like the Walter Cronkite, Dan Rather, Tucker Carlson of his day. Interesting, for most of his life, Muggeridge was both a womanizer and a, and a religious cynic and skeptic. Uh, but eventually he starts doubting his doubts. He actually began questioning his atheism, and he began to investigate Christianity. In the end, he converts to Christianity. He, he receives baptism, begins to walk with God. But what's interesting, uh, upon reflection, Malkridge described his own conversion as God's pursuit of him. Listen to Muggeridge's description of how he came to know God. He said, I had a notion that somehow, besides questioning, I was being pursued. Footsteps padding behind me, a following shadow, a hound of heaven. So near that I could feel the warm breath on my neck. I was also in flight, chasing and being chased, the pursuing and the pursuit, the quest and the flight, merging at last into one single imminence or luminosity. And then Muggeridge, almost as if by prayer, puts it this way to God. Yes, you were there. I know. However far and fast I've run, still over my shoulder I'd catch a glimpse of you, God, on the horizon. And then run faster and farther than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I have escaped. But no, there you were coming after me. One shivers as the divine beast of prey gets ready for the final spring. There is no escape. That I love that line. There is no escape. That is either the most humbling truth that God in his mercy pursues us and wins over our doubts and our fears. Or, you know, immediately you might listen to that and you'd be like, oh, what time's the football game? It is. It's, it's either this humbling joy that God pursues and saves his people or people turn. And so I just want to end where I began. Just remember that the more ultimate the person, the more serious the ultimatum. And a scholar of a past generation put it this way. J.I. Packer says this, call on the coming judge to be your present savior. Like that's the good news of Christianity. Call on the coming judge to be your present savior. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that you would send your son to live and to die and to rise again. Thank you that you sent your son to instruct just what kind of God that you are, that you are both this fierce, glorious, powerful being and also this merciful God who 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 uh, 
sets a table and invites people to come and partake and to know him, to know his son. And so we thank you for this glorious invitation, but we don't want to think that it's a light thing. It's actually a, a, a glorious thing, a serious thing. And so, Lord, just keep our hearts soft towards you. To those who have never believed in you, maybe they would today, that they would call on the coming judge to be their present Savior. I pray, God, that even as we gather around the Lord's table and we remember that Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood in order to save his people, that it would stir in us joy, but also humility, the gravity of the gift that God has given in order to make those who were once his enemies, now his friends and his children. Uh, This is glorious news. This is good news. And we thank you for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.